Acts Acts 9, verses 1 through 19a. God's word says this, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them to Jerusalem, bound. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Please be seated. Let's pray one more time and ask the Lord to help us as we approach his word. Lord, thank you for the privilege of being here this morning in your house to interact with you through your word. By your Holy Spirit's help, please help us to understand, to receive. Lord, give us conviction where that's needed. Give us comfort where that's needed. And whatever mix, Lord, we know you know each of us and you know what we need from your word. So we thank you for your presence with us and we ask for your help now. In Jesus' name, amen. What is the darkest hour? What is the darkest hour? In our culture, that phrase, I can't help but think of an album that was totally out of my character right after I graduated from high school and before college. Uh, Amy Lou Harris put out an album called Roses in the Snow. And on it were various songs, some uh, secular, 
But there was this old bluegrassy song, and Ricky Skaggs, young Christian guy, just going to make it there in, in Nashville, uh, sang the duet with her, uh, an old Ralph Stanley song called The Darkest Hour is Just Before the Dawn. And to trust and to lay down your soul at Jesus' feet because the darkest hour is just before the dawn. But that's not where the phrase originated. It's part of our language. Uh, you might have seen a film about Winston Churchill called Darkest Hour. Uh, it's part of, of a parcel of who we are. We hear that from people. Uh, don't worry, this is your darkest hour. It's going to get better. The darkest hour is before the dawn. Uh, I didn't ask any of our scientists in here if that's actually a scientific fact, but it sure is a fact in our understanding and in our legend that right when it gets dark, all of a sudden here comes the light. Someone wrote about the darkest hour being before dawn. He, he or she said, this is one of those quote-unquote improving proverbs that are the stock in trade of the contemporary glut of self-help manuals and talk therapies. Didn't have much opinion of this phrase saying it's just a cliche that we use on each other. But if we're Christians, if we're Christians and we know our Bibles and we've lived any time and walked as believers, we know that this is not just a cliche. This is not just an old adage. This is what they would call a truism. This has been proven true again and again. It's absolutely the truth. First time the phrase was used that we know of in our language about the darkest hour being just before dawn was by a theologian in England named Thomas Fuller in 1650. It's gone through um, many, many... um, It's been handed down through many centuries during our hard, difficult times. Biblically, you think of Joseph. You think of when all was lost... The darkest hour, he's in a pit, he's sold, he's then in jail. He is all of these things, and it was the darkest. It was over for him. And God used that for salvation. Think of the series of deliverers God sent in the book of Judges. And if you're reading through the Bible in a year, and you're going uh, straight through it, uh, I don't know where you're at right now, but you're going to be right around Judges if you've made it through Uh, Leviticus and and some of those ones that that you must persevere through that are good for you. Um, But if you get into Judges, you will see how God's people uh, were down, uh, their own sin, their own neglect of God, but they were down. And when they cried out to God, it never once says, and God refused to hear them. God heard them, and he sent this judge. He sent this one. He sent this one. He sent this one. The whole idea of the darkest hour before God's deliverance is in our scriptures. The last minute salvation of God's people in the book of Esther, for instance. The reminder in Romans 8 that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. During my darkest hour, it might be that it's one of you who speaks to me and reminds me of these things about God. I hope you're there to do that for me. And I will not look at you and say, you're just blowing smoke. You're just saying this to help me. I'll know from Scripture because I had to tell it to you. And we remind each other as Christians that the darkest hour is just before God breaks the dawn light through 
as Christians, you and I are insiders into the goodness and sovereignty of God. As Christians around the globe these days are persecuted for their uncompromising belief in salvation through Jesus Christ. And as storm clouds gather for Christians in the so-called free world, a passage in Acts 9 is a vital reminder for us that the darkest hour is just before dawn. Essentially two parts to this message this morning based on this scripture. The darkness and the dawn. The third part, it's an application for our lives. So consider the darkness. The darkness that these brothers and sisters of ours were in. Stephen had been martyred. There was blood in the water. The sharks were circling around. This emboldened Saul. We see that in in the first part of of Acts chapter 8. We see it in our text today. Uh, The church was scattered. Run for your life. Get your family and get out. These refugees, these religious refugees, your way of life that you had is over, and you're going to resettle somewhere else. The persecution in those days was not unlike the persecution in these days. It was a, involving religious forces, and, and, and it had some pseudo-religious language, but it was combined with a secular government and permission of the secular government. All the forces against God were united, sort of like Jesus at the cross, where you had religious uh, people, Jewish religious people, with secular Roman people collaborating. And the darkness was there already. That would be dark enough. But what's worse is when you realize that there's no place you can run. The hatred is so great. The desire to squelch you as a Christian, as a new believer. I don't even know that they were called Christians yet. uh, the, The text here calls them followers of the way. Perhaps based on Jesus' claim where he says, I am the way, the truth, the life. Perhaps that's where that phrase came from. But they were Christians. They had trusted in Jesus and in the resurrected Jesus. And they had an enemy. They had many enemies, certainly. But one notorious one that made it to the pages of Scripture because of what would happen in this story. One named Paul, who not only wanted them dead, but who had power to make it happen. Now, uh, there are several accounts of Paul's conversion and this happening, three of them in Acts. I'll list the others later on in the sermon. But Acts 22 and Acts 26. Uh, Acts 26 is particularly interesting because it's Paul giving his own testimony of what happened. So Luke is recording and writing now uh, what happened. That's true. But then you get Paul saying, let me explain to you maybe some more details on what was going on when this happened. Acts 26, verses 9 through 11. Paul is talking to King Agrippa. And as he talks about his mindset at the time, he says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, But when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. 
I've voted for these Christians to die. And I punished them often in all the synagogues. And I tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. And he's getting ready to talk about his conversion. But this is what was going on in his mind. Acts 9, 1 and 2 that is part of our text this morning. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if any be found belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Acts 8, 2 and 3, right after Stephen's martyrdom, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. What happened to the children? Probably what happens when men and women are locked into prison. Maybe somebody takes care of them. Maybe somebody doesn't. Maybe they go in. We don't know, but he did not care. Get them. Get those Christians. It's like in that book, if you've ever read uh, The Call of the Wild, and, and there's a description that Jack London has about the dogs, and sometimes dogs will start to fight each other. And boy, the other dogs are standing around. And when that one takes the one down, you know if you're a dog in a fight. You go down, the rest will pounce. And that's what was going on. These people faced darkness. They faced a life situation of displacement. Already an emotional toll on them. They'd seen Stephen, who they revered, killed for daring to say that Jesus is Lord. He's the resurrected one. He's God. There were economic circumstances that they had to get used to as religious Christian refugees. There were spiritual things going on. There were emotional things. There were relational things. They were tested in every way. It was darkness. And I personally think, and I hadn't thought about that much, but I almost think what would have made it worse is the complete reversal of fortune. Think of the early descriptions of the church where there are added to their numbers thousands every day, where people are, are sharing, where people are taking care of them, the widows, okay, there's a glitch. The Greek, uh, the, the Greek uh, origin uh, Jewish widows weren't being taken care of. We solved that. We got these godly men to make sure people were taken care of. There was something they, they belonged to that was more than just the religion. It was a church family. And it went from being uh, a run-of-the-mill life to having the Holy Spirit inside of you to seeing a perspective on life. Think of how great it was and how elating it would have been at first. And then to have that not just taken away, but crushed and shattered, that range of emotions in a short period of time. What these brothers and sisters of ours went through. And it was dark. And here came Saul. And you know they knew he was coming because when God talked to Ananias, Ananias said, Never heard of Saul. He said, no, we know of Saul. He's an evil guy, and he's coming. He's, they knew it was coming. I think that would have made it worse. From an average life to the high of being a Christian, 
to the absolute threat for your life and your family's life and on the run? Where would they be safe? What were their prayers, I wonder? What kind of prayers did they pray? What would you have prayed were you in that situation? Mine would be something like this. Lord, keep me hidden. I wouldn't have dared to say it, or maybe I would have beat myself up. Lord, I, I love the, <laughs> the Smiths, but <laughs> Lord, <laughs> let them go first. Take care of my little one as I'm cradling her uh, to sleep. Lord, keep us hidden. Keep my family safe. Maybe my prayers would be, Lord, give me sympathy among this secular uh, people among whom I live or help the people that have not converted to Christ but who are my fellow Jewish uh, neighbors. Help them to have sympathy for me in a time. Help them not to rat me out and turn me in and join in. Lord, stop Saul. However you want to do it, And my unspoken might have been, or my spoken might have been, kill him. Knock him down. Give him what he deserves. Where are those imprecatory psalms? I want to pray them right now. Um, Those might have been my thoughts and my prayers to God. God had knocked him down on the road and not spoken to him and converted him, but struck him with a lightning bolt. I may have been happy. till I heard the story of what really happened. Would it have occurred to me in those days to even pray for him, for salvation, for the darkness in his heart to be overcome with God's love and light through Jesus Christ? I may not have thought of it then, but I don't really have an excuse to not think it and pray it now for even the people who declare themselves as God's enemies. Pray now for God's enemies to become God's friends. And then we see the dawn. Incidentally, this conversion story, as I said, it's recorded or referenced six times in the New Testament. So you think in the uh, Gospels, we call them the Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. There are some stories that are recorded four times. Every one of them hits. A lot of them, John's got new material. Uh, I think it's Matthew and Luke, if I remember my seminary days or the last time I preached through, have more in common, and Mark is there with more in line. They call those even the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But there are some events that are in all four. Here's six references to Paul's conversion. This was a monumental event. We see it in Acts 9, 22 and 26. See it referred to in Galatians 1, in Philippians 3, 1 Timothy 1. And we need to understand at this point that yes, it was dark times as a collective group for God's people. But it was not dark times for what had gone on in their hearts. The light had shone into their hearts. But think of Paul's heart. And think of the darkness that was there, religious though he was. And I would say, and I think every one of us would agree, it's better to have your sins forgiven and be oppressed than to be the oppressor. 
better to be on the receiving end and know Christ than to be on the dishing it out end and hate Christ. Rage. He raged against the church. He ravished these descriptions that they give of him and his mindset as he went. It was not just a uh, clinical, sorry, that's just, just business. Nothing personal, just business. Uh, you see personal and business. He's after them. He's going out of his way. He had a good career, we find out about him. He had a great teacher. He sat at the feet of, of a man named Gamaliel. He was on his way. He forsook his career to go after the followers of the way. He was consumed. It's the worst kind of hatred. A self-righteous, pseudo-moral, God-on-our-side refusal to live and let live. Didn't allow differing thought in that culture. Remember how they did it with Stephen. Couldn't bear to hear what he said. Couldn't listen to him. Just covered their ears stopped up their ears and raged and yelled so they wouldn't even have to hear what might be truth. Didn't want to allow in their own mind the possibility that maybe these Christians were onto something. And there was a hatred that sprung up. No free speech or freedom of religion allowed in that culture. Groupthink, thought crimes, the daily two minutes of hate that you read about maybe in Orwell's book, 1984. And dawn had to break first in the darkness of Saul's heart. And God did save him. Because God can save. And God called him by name. Saul, Saul, called him by name. As he called you by name. He didn't say, oh, Number 436 down there just got saved <laughs> when you got saved, or be a longer digit than that by, by the time you got saved, I'm sure. But uh, he didn't call you by number or categorize you by uh, any of your things that we like to categorize ourselves as we take away our identities in, in our culture today. He called him by name. He called you by name. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Quick word on name. I always thought he was Saul, then he got saved, and because of all that bad stuff in the past, now he's called Paul. That's not in the Bible. He was Saul, also called Paul. One's a Jewish name, one's a Roman name. Paul means little. Early church uh, historians say Paul was a short guy. Maybe that's why he went by Paul, maybe, maybe not. Uh, the bottom line is we don't know. I might say Saul, I might say Paul. I'm talking about Saul from Acts. I'm talking about this guy also known as Paul. God knew his name. God even knows why he was called Saul sometimes and Paul the others. God knows that. We don't. But he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He called him by name. He pointed out a particular sin that Paul was doing. There was conviction of sin. There was interaction with God. And there was a a trust. And that was his conversion moment. And his heart went from darkness and rage and hate to light. Others heard the noise, or they heard the voice. They didn't hear the exact words. Paul had the dialogue. Parallel to our culture, many people hear religious noise. Many people even 
are in churches and places where there's the religious noise. Christians hear the voice and God calling. We talked about this in deacon training yesterday, about that particular call. And it was good to be reminded again that when Jesus died on the cross for his people's sins, it wasn't for the possibility that maybe you'd get saved and then maybe he'd love you. Particular. It was particular. And your sins and mine, if we're called by God and saved by God, trusting in Jesus and have repented, they're being paid for. Jesus died for me, not for the possibility of me. And he called him by name. And he dialogued with him. And there was immediate entrance into a community for Paul. Can't see. Why did God keep him blind? Don't know. If it was for me, it might be so I wouldn't uh, be distracted by changing channels in the next ball game or the next whatever and wouldn't check my emails or wouldn't do all that stuff. Maybe if I'm blind... Maybe then I'm thinking about the dialogue and the words. And it did say he was praying and he was showing him visions. He said, he's going to, Ananias, I'm talking to you about him, but I'm talking to him about you. But God kept him blind, but he kept him in a house where he was safe. Street called Straight. House of a man named Judas. Here comes Ananias reluctantly, as we would have been. And what does he say to him when he greets him? brother Saul and there's family you've been you came to kill us God saved you you're my brother brother Saul God sent me to you and the scales fell from his eyes think of God saying about Saul he is a chosen instrument of mine God says, I've got this tool. I've got the right, I know the people that have the right tools for everything. <laughs> to me, it's like screwdriver, pliers. <laughs> you know, somebody says needle nose, pliers, and I can kind of figure that out from the, the description of the word. I'm not the tool guy. People have the right tool for everything. Paula gets together in her gardening business, and they, all, the, all the gardeners talk about their tool. I like this tool. I like this tool. We brought a tool down in Williamsburg that was like a, a good tool that they've been using, this kind of tool for a couple hundred years. God says, I've got the right tool for what I want to do. God's going to do it, but he says, Paul is the right, he's the chosen instrument. I'm picking him out. Uh, That sinner who's killed all these people and who would kill people who basically hates me, he's my tool that I'm going to use. Quick application. We're not in the application uh, yet of the sermon, but can't you see, don't you see yourself as God's chosen instrument for what he has for you to do? Aren't we saved? His workmanship created, saved by him to do good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them? When you give your life to Christ, when you surrender, when you repent and and you place your faith in Jesus Christ, 
does God just sweep you off and say, next, next, next? Oh, here's one finally good, one I can use. No, he saved you to do good works, your particular good works in the world where you live, that you should walk in them. He's my instrument. He's your brother Saul. Appreciate God saving and bringing your fellow Christians into your family. Them with their unique job that they can do as a tool for God to do God's work that may be different than yours. And there was salvation. Along the way, as you've interacted with the text, no doubt the Holy Spirit has been giving you things as you've listened and and opened your heart to receiving the word. Maybe things that, certainly things that haven't even been pointed out from the pulpit here this morning. But I want to close by by, uh, adding a couple of things to those things that you're already thinking. I'm going to supplement that. I would say the greatest example of the very darkest hour leading to the dawn would be what? The death of Jesus Christ on the cross. This is covered by the writers of the Gospels, but Luke, who wrote Acts, also uh, covered it this way when he's writing about darkness. Luke 23, 44, following. It was now about the sixth hour, meaning it was noon. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Three hours of darkness. Remember, no electricity in those days. Everybody knew one thing. Rooster crows, the sun's coming up, then the sun goes down, you sleep for a certain amount of time at a certain, and then it gets light again. But these three hours when Jesus died, there was darkness over the whole land. No flashlights. No matches. Maybe rub sticks together or flint or run and grab if you've got some coal somewhere burning and get your lamp out or whatever, but darkness over the land, signifying the darkness that was there when the Son of God was crucified. Darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. I believe it's the Mark account or maybe another translation where they said, certainly this man was the Son of God. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. Didn't start out that way started out joining in the mockery, saw what had happened, felt the darkness, and went home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who'd followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. This was darkness, the darkest, leading to the resurrection, the light, the joy of the Christ who conquered death and sin being with them, physical presence. Touch him, feel the scars, eat a meal with him, 
go assemble and lock your doors. He'll just come through the walls because he's heavier than, than the heaviest thing. He's, he's more real than the realist. And there was joy. And he taught them, consolidated all of the Old Testament scriptures and everything that had happened in the Old Testament. There was a consolidation there of what it was, what all that had been about, all the stuff they learned as little kids and the verses they'd memorized in the stories, all of a sudden with the focus on Christ being what this was all leading to and the joy they had. And even when he ascended into heaven, you see them rejoicing because they knew that it was him and the Holy Spirit was coming. Darkness leading to light. And since he gave you Jesus Christ, will he not also give you all things? Freely give you all things. Notice this. This was another one that hit me. This isn't what the whole thing is about, but there's an observation that I hadn't thought about this week. Paul, when he said to him, or God... Jesus, who he was persecuting, when Jesus said to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting those Christians? He didn't say that, did he? Why are you persecuting me? I'm not persecuting you, I'm just persecuting the Christians. The identification of Jesus with you, his son, his daughter. Don't take that lightly. Don't, don't just blow past that. Didn't Jesus, before he was crucified, even say, Whatever you've done for the least of these little ones, my brothers, Christians, you've done unto me. And the identification that Jesus, the very God of very God, has with you. Somebody smacks you, you're smacking Jesus. Jesus knows that. And that identification. Yes, we are to identify with Christ. We are in Christ, but Christ is in us whole idea of union with Christ. And what does that mean? Christ dwelling in us richly. You might say, well, he wouldn't identify with me so much if he knew me because I'm a sinner. If he knew, well, you know what he does, doesn't he? And I think the more we think about what Jesus saved us from and who we are, we move from the base sins, the cultural sins. Boy, the, the world will always find something. That's a sin, that's a sin, that's a sin, that's a sin. They'll move on to the next thing. That's a sin, that's a sin. Sometimes they'll get a ride, and what they call a sin will really be a sin, but it won't be the sin. But it'll be a, sometimes the world gets it right, sometimes they get it wrong. We know ourselves because we know from God's word, and we know from our conscience, we know what we were. And listen to this progression of Paul as he described himself early on in his ministry. One of the first letters he's written is they've kind of dated and tried to put the mission trips together and all those things. 1 Corinthians 15, 9, he's writing a letter. And there's humility here. He says, I'm the least of the apostles. Time he gets to writing Ephesians in 3, 8, he says, I'm the very least of all the saints. The end, he wrote a couple of letters we call them the pastoral epistles. Wrote two to Timothy and one to Titus. And in the one to, the, to Timothy, they, they, they think pretty strongly with good evidence it was right before he died. 
He wasn't calling himself the least of the apostles. He wasn't calling himself the very least of all the saints or all the Christians. He called himself in Timothy, 1 Timothy 1.15, I am the chief of all sinners. And there was an understanding, even as he progressed, even as he did these good things, that he'd been saved and it was all of God and it was no merit or worth of his own. Not, I've done a lot for Jesus, so I deserve this little bit of illicit pleasure as a gift for all I've done for Jesus. I need my relief. Not that. Not from Paul. Not obligatory C.S. Lewis quote, but I read it and I said, I'm going to throw it in here too. C.S. Lewis is not the scripture, but boy, he's a pretty good guy as far as helping us. He said, when a man is getting better, he understands more and more clearly the evil that is still in him. When a man is getting worse, he understands his own badness less and less. And you think about that. And Jesus saved us, sinners, from our sins to give us life, to give us purpose, to give us uh, a job as his instrument, to put us in a family, to do his calling. And we understand the more we go and the more we dive into it as we grow, which we will if we're Christians, and we won't if we're not Christians, but we will if we're Christians, we understand and appreciate God's goodness and grace even more. And we can sing a song like, More, More About Jesus, More Would I Know, and it can trace us all through our life. Those, those verses about the, the, the hoary head, the old gray head and all that, all the way to heaven. And you need to think about how you're a Christian, not just then when you prayed a prayer, not just now when you got all this going on, but all the way to heaven. You are saved for this, and you are going to a goal. You're going to a place, and this place is not it. And our lives are, James says, a a vapor or a breath. I was laughing about this, I think, with Paula the other day. had a kid in our youth group. Bo Ferguson, and I was teaching the kids about our life being but a breath, and he said, just make sure, if your life's a breath, make sure you're not onion breath, but make sure you're toothpaste breath, and I thought, that's pretty funny. Um, (laughs) But our life is like a a breath. Go out in a cold day, and it's gone. And we understand God's grace, and we've got a place we're going. And all of a sudden, Paul became the one who was the hunted. Paul became the one who did die for Christ, ultimately. Paul became the one who gave us these words. For if the time comes to us in a real physical sense, or if it just comes in a a cancel culture type sense, uh, he gave us these words for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Kill me. Go ahead. I'm going to heaven. Cancel me can't cancel me from God, well, then we're not going to. Then I'm going to use my uh, means to tell people about Jesus. Well, then we're going to cancel you. Well, then don't. Well, then I'm going to live for God. And you know what? It doesn't matter one way or the other. That's all in the hands of God. description as Christians is always the same. So here's how we close. Whatever your darkest hour, whether personal agony or collective persecution. You can look to God who has always delivered his people when things were hopeless. 
And you can look to eternity as Paul did when the situation was reversed. He became the persecuted. And he could look at his imprisonment as an opportunity to be an ambassador in chains. He looked at his coming martyrdom and said with joy, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. And you and me as Christians can say that very thing. And God will give us the strength. He will to say that very thing. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for your encouragement. Thank you for saving sinners like us uh, as trophies for your grace. Lord, we thank you that we get to be your chosen instruments to do whatever you have for us to do. And it might not even look great to the world, but it's, it's a great thing when you use us to do your will uh, for your purpose. Lord, thank you that we get to live for you. And we pray for those who hate you, for those who hate your word, for those who join together. We pray uh, not for their death. We pray for their life. We pray for salvation. We pray for the darkness to be overcome in their hearts as you save them and that they can uh, be there worshiping you in heaven forever along with us, all of us unworthy but made worthy through Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.